1: In the 1990s, Jonathan Demme directed the film Philadelphia, about the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and early 90s. Needing a rock song to open the movie, he approached Bruce Springsteen. The boss had previously written an unfinished song about a friend who had died, and he went to his home studio, and with just a drum machine and no musicians, he quickly crafted a demo. Thinking the song's rock beat didn't mesh well with its plaintive lyrics, Springsteen nonetheless sent it to Demi, who loved it, and the song would go on to win an Academy Award and become an anthem for those who had lost their lives or their friends to AIDS.
2: I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt I was unrecognizable to myself saw my in a window and didn't know my own face So oh, brother, gonna
1: leave And the music video for the song works just as well as the opening of the movie, with Springsteen serving as our tour guide as he takes us around Center City, Independence National Historical Park, Northern Liberties, South Philly, the Barrio, Rittenhouse Square, and finally the Camden Riverfront. When Springsteen sings about being bruised and battered and unrecognizable, he's talking about someone ravaged by HIV-AIDS, but he could just as easily be talking about the city of brotherly love. By the early 90s, William Penn's dream of creating a city that would not bring the horrors of European urban life to the shores of the New World had turned into a nightmare. It was a nightmare that disproportionately impacted one population, African-American men. In an influential 2015 piece for the New York Times, researchers wrote about the 1.5 million missing black men, including 36,000 in Philadelphia, or 42.8% of that population. These are men who either died or were incarcerated. Some were the victims of HIV-AIDS. Some were the victims of drugs or the war on drugs. Others were gang members or the victims of gang violence. And then there were those who were wrongfully convicted. In the Terrence Lewis series, we took you down Sansom Street, one of the streets of Philadelphia, or in his case, West Philadelphia. Now we're taking you back east in that same street to the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood that Bruce Springsteen walked in his video to tell you the story of Chester Holman III, Another young African American man who we believe was wrongfully convicted.
3: Hi, and welcome to Undisclosed: The State vs. Chester Holman III. My name is Rabia Chaudhry. I'm an attorney and author, and I'm here with my colleagues Susan Simpson and Colin Miller.
1: Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog.
2: Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I blog at the Mr 2 and I also podcast with Rabia at The 45th.
3: A little after 1 a.m. on August 20th, 1991, a flurry of calls came into the Philadelphia Police Emergency Call Center. Between 1.01 and 9 seconds and 1.02 and 45 seconds a.m., in the span of about 90 seconds, seven different people called to report that someone had been shot in the Chestnut and 22nd Street area. Some of the callers saw nothing, and they heard only screams coming from the street. Others heard a gunshot, and yet others saw someone down on the ground and people running from the scene. One caller had the most vital information— He was calling from the Quaker City Cab Company, and one of their drivers had not only witnessed the shooting, but also saw and followed the getaway car used by the perps. He could describe it almost perfectly, a large white Bronco type of truck and jackpot. He even knew the first three digits of the license plate, Y-Z-A. By 1.05 a.m., the police had pulled over a white Chevy truck with two young black people in it, a man and a woman, that they took back to the scene of the crime. Numerous other witnesses to the shooting were gathered at the scene. The police also drove the car that they found the suspects in, which turned out to be a Chevy Blazer and not a Bronco, for those witnesses to identify. It had the same three digits on its tags as reported by the cab driver, Y-Z-A. The police had apprehended the suspects within four minutes of the crime, which was now no longer just a shooting. The victim had died, and the cops now had a homicide on their hands. And within 24 hours of the murder, they had a confession by the young woman who was in custody, and they filed homicide charges against the man who had been with her when they were pulled over, 21-year-old Chester Holm III. With a slew of eyewitnesses, the getaway car, and a confession, it couldn't have been an easier case to close for the cops. So what happened that warm August night? Who got shot? Why? And how?
1: As far as the crime goes, this was a basically a, a street robbery of a Penn grad student, it was a foreign student, a uh, young man from, uh, from South Korea.
2: That's Alan Tauber, a Philadelphia criminal defense attorney who has been handling this case for over a decade now. And you just heard him give a brief summary of the murder of Tae Jong-ho, which took place in about the same amount of times it took to play that clip. It was fast, very fast. Taejung Ho was a 24-year-old Korean graduate student who'd come to the University of Pennsylvania to study just five months before he was killed. He'd enrolled in Penn's English language program for international students, and he came from a family of educators. His father was a university professor, and his mother was a retired teacher. Learning and teaching was a family tradition, and it was why Taejung traveled halfway across the world. He was smart, very smart, according to his uncle, having graduated from a top university in Seoul. On the night he was murdered, Taesung was helping his girlfriend, Yunko Nihai, an international student from Japan, who was here to study ballet. They were moving her things to her new apartment that the two were going to share going forward. They had just moved in together the day before, in fact, and were returning to the new apartment from her old one, where they had some cleaning up to do. At around 1 a.m., they began walking south on 22nd Street, with Chestnut Street behind them and Sansom Street up ahead at the next intersection. They were headed up to Walnut Street, which was the street right after Sansom, one more block to the south. The area was dark with little lighting, and then it happened.
1: Two African-American men appeared suddenly, shoving Jung from the back, according to Yunko. Before she knew it, her boyfriend was on the ground, being attacked. Yunko testified that the three men were struggling on the ground, and she attempted to pull the attackers off. She was worried about her boyfriend getting hurt as he struggled because Young had recently had surgical procedure on his head but as she tried to help him, she was shoved hard by one of the men and fell to the side, landing on her hands. When she looked up, both of the men were on top of Tae Young. One wearing a dark baseball cap, held his legs and the other leaned over his upper body. The man leaning over Tae Young's face pulled out a black gun, pressed it into Tae Young's collar and fired a single round. As Yunko began screaming, the shooter took off, running north toward Chestnut, but the other man wasn't done with his work. The other attacker frantically searched through Taehyung's pockets. At this point, Taehyung was laying silent and prone, and then finally the attacker took off himself. Yunka kept screaming, watching the men rifle through her boyfriend's pockets, hoping someone would hear her and come to their aid. And people did. Because that night, even though it was after midnight, the street wasn't empty. A number of witnesses saw or heard the attack, which lasted all of about 15 or 20 seconds. And even though Yunka was the closest to the crime... Or maybe because she was the closest, in her police statement later that night, she says she can't recall anything the shooter was wearing, but does remember the other man wore a dark baseball cap. That, and they were both young and of medium build, those were the only descriptions she could offer. The police were on the scene quickly, arriving in a matter of minutes. Taehyung was rushed to Hanuman University Hospital, about a mile away, where he was pronounced dead. According to the story that ran in the Philadelphia Inquirer the next day, Taehyung was supposed to be traveling to Los Angeles that coming weekend, his first time there, to visit his aunt and uncle. Instead, they got calls from the university authorities and the police informing them that their nephew was dead. His uncle called Taehyung's parents in South Korea to tell them the news, but they didn't believe it. They didn't believe their son was dead. And his uncle, all the way out in LA, also didn't quite believe it. Still, he was making arrangements for a casket to take Taehyung back home. I've been a fan of the company Ring ever since seeing them on Shark Tank a few years ago. The concept is genius. If someone rings your doorbell and you aren't home or don't want to come to the front door, you can respond to the person using just your smartphone, adding a level of both security and convenience. Today, over a million people are using the amazing Ring video doorbell to help protect their homes. And now, Ring has a great new product that I was really excited to get a couple weeks ago. It's the Ring Floodlight Cam. Just like Ring's amazing doorbell, the Floodlight Cam is a motion-activated camera and floodlight that connects right to your phone with HD video and two-way audio that lets you know the moment anyone steps on your property. You can see and speak to visitors, even set off an alarm right from your phone. And as someone who lives basically on the campus of a major university and gets a lot of foot traffic around my house, the Ring Floodlight has been a welcome addition to my home. Whether you're home or away, the Ring floodlight cam lets you keep an eye on your home from anywhere and put security right in your hands. Simply put, with Ring, you're always home. And now, as our listener, you can save up to $150 off a Ring of Security Kit when you go to ring.com slash undisclosed. ring.com undisclosed. That's ring.com slash undisclosed.
0: so can you introduce yourself and tell them
3: about your name and what you do?
0: Yeah, Uh, so I'm Celeste Trustee, and I am an advocate for the wrongfully convicted and for sentencing and prison reform, uh, mostly located in Pennsylvania, and um, I am really, really passionate about Philadelphia. So Philadelphia wrongful convictions, Philadelphia uh, criminal justice reform is really what I'm passionate
3: about. Celeste and I connected over Twitter when she reached out about the Philly cases we were covering last year. I checked out her blog, and you should too. It's called The Jury Room, and it can be found at thejuryroom.org. There, Celeste not only blogs about criminal justice in Philadelphia, but she also provides a platform for wrongfully convicted men in Philadelphia to contribute to, men that she visits, writes to, and advocates for. I figured Celeste must work for some organization, but I was shocked to find out all her work is done completely independently and unpaid.
0: Can you tell me how you got involved with Chester's case and the many other cases that you are involved with. Sure. Um, so about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, um, I was in between programs at school and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to lose any of my knowledge. So I wanted to try to find a case from Philadelphia um, that kind of was extremely egregious that I could just kind of dig into and try to find um, patterns of you know uh, misconduct and things like that in Philadelphia. And I came across the case of Jimmy Dennis, um, who was innocent on death row. Um, At the time, he had been there for uh, 21 years, I believe. It was interesting because I was um, alive in the area at the time, and at the time of that crime, I didn't really ever hear of his case, and knowing that I was really into wrongful convictions in Philadelphia, I was shocked that his case, which was absolutely outlandish, had not been as publicized as I thought it could be um so i really just started looking into his case he already had amazing representation out of dc um his conviction had actually already been overturned and the um Pennsylvania uh, State Supreme Court, but I really wanted to look at his case and try to use that as a kind of guideline for looking at other cases. Um, so I just started taking notes of, you know, different uh, detectives' names, cops' names at the time, different prosecutors. And um, then once I was able to graduate uh, with my graduate degree, I decided to kind of expand my scope of advocacy work because Jimmy had been released from death row um, last May. And so I just basically started doing as much research as I could. On wrongful conviction claims and innocence claims in Philadelphia, and I basically—not cold called because you can't cold call prisons—but I basically cold emailed um, about uh, seven different guys who had been convicted in Pennsylvania who had in- innocence claims, most of which were coming from the eighties and nineties.
3: It turned out that one of those men was Chester Holmes III, the defendant in this series. Celeste was really excited when I told her last year we would be covering his case. She already had some of his files, and she considered him a friend so I did the smart thing. I began working with her on the investigation. And you'll hear more from Celeste throughout the series, but for now, let's listen to her describe the state of affairs in Philadelphia in the early 1990s.
0: 1991 in Philadelphia was very violent, they had a ton of robberies violent robberies for gold for people wearing chains young kids getting killed constantly they, it was a high profile case and they needed to find somebody who did it so basically there had been um, and the Jimmy Dennis case that I was talking about before that was also in 1991 uh, where basically a, a young girl who was uh, you know in broad daylight was attacked and killed for, for her jewelry and so this wasn't broad daylight but it was another student um, and it was a it Was a problem, and a couple weeks before that, um, a couple people were arrested for doing the same thing for killing another Penn student at the time. And so it wasn't necessarily this case per se, but just the time in Philadelphia. They really needed to, you know, it was it was a big deal, and they needed to make the public feel safe. Celeste is right. According to the Pennsylvania Daily,
3: in the early 1990s, Penn was quote an exemplar of crime-ridden campus. And the crime didn't stay on campus. It extended around it to the areas students lived in in the city, and of course, to the city itself. The early 1990s saw a crime wave in Philadelphia with one of the highest murder rates in the country, a country that was itself experiencing a peak in crime. In 1991, close to 450 people were murdered in the city, in one city. And taejong was only one of three Asians to be killed in Philadelphia that year.
2: While Yunko witnessed the actual shooting firsthand and saw the two men involved, what she didn't realize is that there were more people involved in the crime. The men who attacked Taizung took off north, up 22nd Street, and then turned the corner on Chestnut, but they didn't disappear into thin air. They were picked up by a truck that was waiting for them. It was a white Chevy Blazer, although some of the earlier reports called it a Bronco, and it was driven by a black woman. The blazer had been idling further south than 22nd before the crime, parked at a gas station, and the police were able to gather six eyewitnesses to the incident, not even including Yunko, all of whom gave statements that very same night. The first witness to noticing suspicious was a man named George Coleman. He was hanging out in an empty playground around the corner of Chestnut 22nd Street at around 12am, though he wasn't sure of the exact time, and it's hard to figure out exactly what playground he meant because there isn't one now, for sure. But... While out there, he noticed two young black men loitering on the corner. Really young, he said, according to the police statement, like around 14 years old, but definitely not older than 16. And for some reason, he didn't like the look of the kids. As he put it, I could tell they were scheming. I could tell they were up to no good. One of the kids had a black hood on, and Coleman didn't notice what the other one was wearing. But he watched them around there for about 10 minutes, and then he noticed a car, the white Chevy Blazer, parked by the bus stop. In the driver's seat was a young black woman with a medium complexion, who apparently gave Coleman a weird look of some sort that he interpreted as stay away. Eventually, the two kids wandered off and Coleman heard a gunshot. He took off running, but he noticed the girl in the blazer stayed in her car, which told him something was wrong or fishy about the whole scene. And Coleman told the police how he noticed the same two young men, the two kids he thought about 14, 16 years old, rushed past him the other direction. Although a couple questions later, He contradicted himself, telling them instead that they hadn't run past him, but he saw them both get into the Chevy Blazer. He then watched the Blazer take off and turn the corner, and he didn't see it again until not long after that, the police returned with the car.
1: Another witness that night, one who actually witnessed the crime, was a man named Joseph Cabin. Around 12.30 a.m., Cabin was on his way to call his mother in Florida from a phone booth on 22nd Street. That booth was located between Sansom and Walnut, right next to an Atlantic gas station on the left side, or the west side of the street. As he approached the phone booth, he noticed a white Chevy Blazer sitting at a gas pump, but not actually pumping gas. He walked directly past the passenger side of the vehicle, which was facing north, and got a good look at the passenger. According to Cabin, there were two young black women in the front of the car, but he didn't see the driver well, but did see that she had shoulder-length hair. The woman in the passenger seat was between 19 and 21 years of age, medium-complected, hair pulled into a bun. The Blazer must have driven off while he was on the phone, because a little later he saw the same car driving westbound on Sansom Street, the street just north of him, turn right on 22nd Street, and then do something weird. It backed up, all the way back down to the exact same gas pump it had been sitting at earlier. Capen was about 15 to 20 feet away at the booth, but kept turning around and noticed that no one was actually getting any gas. The car was just sitting with the engine shut off and no lights on. At no time, according to Cabin, did he see anyone else approach the vehicle. Cabin went back to his phone call and about 15 to 20 minutes later, heard what he thought was a firecracker. He turned and saw a woman he thought was Korean screaming for help about a block north, close to 22nd and Chestnut. He also saw an African-American male dressed in blue jeans and a bright green top standing over a man on the ground. Later... He says he didn't see the man from the front, only his back, as he left the scene. But nonetheless, the perp began running toward Chestnut with a Korean woman trying to follow him. Around that same time, the Chevy that had been standing in the gas lane had pulled up past where the victim lay on the ground to the corner of 22nd Street and Chestnut. There, it slowed to a stop, and the man in the green shirt jumped in. As all this
3: was happening, Cabin noticed a Quaker City cab which had been driving north on 22nd Street. The cab followed the blazer as it made a right on Chestnut and disappeared from Cabin's view. Cabin told his family someone had gotten shot, hung up, and told another black man who witnessed the crime to call the police. He then went over to the screaming woman and the victim and noticed blood around his neck and head area. He stayed with them both until the police arrived minutes later, followed by the same cab driver who pulled over and told the cops where he had seen the blazer go. According to Cabin, some of the cops took off and came back about five or 10 minutes later with the blazer itself, driven by a police officer. And along with the vehicle, they also had in custody a black female that Cabin recognized. It was the woman sitting in the passenger seat of the blazer when it was parked at the gas station. Cabin was sure it was the same woman. Also, the cops had a young black man in custody with them, wearing a white shirt, green sweatpants, and a baseball hat. Cabin wasn't sure if it was the same guy in the bright green shirt he'd seen running after the shooting, but he thought maybe he had changed his clothing. So now we've got two accounts, one in which there are two guys and one woman involved, and a second in which there are two women and one man involved. Just last week, I had to get a really important package mailed out, like immediately, but the day got away from me, like it does for so many of us, and I just couldn't make it to the post office in time. Lucky for me, I have Stamps.com, and my package did get sent out, because Stamps brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. All you have to do is use your own computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail, and you just let the mailman pick it up right from your home or business. You never have to leave your home or business. No more lugging mail anywhere, no more hassle, no more worrying about hours. You know, imagine all the things you can do at the same time if you use stamps.com. It saves you time and money because everything you can do at the post office, almost everything you could do, you can do right from your desk. And stamps.com has posted discounts that you actually can't get at the post office. And they make it really easy because Stamps.com sends you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. And no, it's nothing like those super expensive postage meters. It is a fraction of the cost. You will never overpay or underpay for postage again either. I know I've done that. I've ended up putting up too many stamps or not enough stamps and well, I never have to get it wrong now that I have Stamps.com. So create your Stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. It is convenient, it is easy, it is reliable, and efficient. I use Stamps.com because I need to save time and money and energy in my life. And right now, you too can enjoy stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale. You ready for a happier, more efficient, easier new year? Well, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in UNDISCLOSED. That's Stamps.com, and enter UNDISCLOSED. The next set of witnesses were boyfriend and girlfriend Salvatore Genestra and Patricia Bowles. Sal had just finished up work and went to see his girlfriend, and together they were sitting on the steps of a church on Chestnut Street, between 21st and 22nd Streets. As they were chatting, Sal suddenly heard a female screaming and a cap-like noise, followed by a man who came around the corner from 22nd, yelling for the police to be called. Sal began moving towards the corner and saw, as he put it, Quote, an oriental girl chasing a black man with a dark hoodie and shorts on. The man was about 5'7 in his early 20s and looked dark complected. But Sal admitted that it could have been because of the hood. It looked as if the man was holding something under his sweatshirt by his waist on the left side. The man crossed Chestnut standing on the northeast corner of the intersection and a white jeep came around the corner from 22nd onto Chestnut and slowed to a stop right next to him.
2: Sal then describes a the second figure that he said looked like a person jumping in the back of the Jeep, but he wasn't sure if it was a man or a woman, and he couldn't describe them at all, really. But the Jeep then took off heading down east on Chestnut, and the hooded man crossed the street again, running past Sal and his girlfriend and catching up to the Jeep around Chestnut and 21st. There, he got in the passenger side of the car, and when he did that, Sal noticed a second black male in the back of the Jeep already. Sal headed back towards the crime scene, where he found a group of people gathered around the victim and Yunko. He saw police were already on their way, and he flagged them down and told them what he saw, and that there were four people in the vehicle. He'd actually seen the female driver and the passenger, too. The driver, he said, was a young, light-skinned black woman with long, dark hair and what looked like a bleach streak, and the passenger was a young black woman with short hair. He waited there, and when the police returned the white blazer, he identified it as being the same one he'd seen earlier. He wasn't able, though, to identify the black man in their custody, and all he could say about the woman they brought back was that she had short hair like the passenger he'd seen, but he couldn't say for sure if it was the same one. Sal's girlfriend, Patricia, who is his wife today, told the police nearly the same story that same night, that she'd been sitting on some church steps on Chestnut Street with her boyfriend, and a white jeep came up around the corner to her left from 22nd and Chestnut. Although unlike Sal, she actually saw the second male. He was about 5'8", she said, early 20s, and bigger than the other guy wearing a white t-shirt with some writing on it. And when the white car stopped, he beat beaten the front passenger window to be let in. He then climbed in the car and the car started driving once more. And she describes the hooded man the same as Sal did and noted that he got into the vehicle when it slowed down to stop down the block. But the big difference in her statement is that she says she saw only one woman in the blazer, the driver, who she said was early 20s with long hair, Like complexion, and to Sal's wife, she seemed kind of short because she didn't sit up very tall in the car. Patricia told police that the woman in the car had smiled when she let the man with the white t-shirt into the car. Theoretically, at that time when the police came back, she should have been there still, along with the two suspects the cops had brought back to the scene of the crime, but there's nothing in her statements suggests that she identified anyone or that she was shown them or we just don't know really. But there are a couple other witnesses to the crime, and one of the most important was the cab driver, the one that followed the blazer.
1: There's a cab driver who observed the shooting and watches, you know, and observes the getaway vehicle and and pursues it for several blocks into the city and records a partial license plate number. In Pennsylvania, uh, there are letters and numbers, and uh, I guess in most places, but... The driver was only able to record the letters and not the numbers. And he calls that in, I believe, on a 911 call, uh, which is immediately broadcast you know, across city. The cab driver was a man named John Henderson, and it's fair to say he was the first to provide the police with solid details of the crime. The very first call made to emergency services came in at 1.01 and 9 seconds a.m. from the Quaker City Cab Company, calling in to report what Henderson had seen. This call doesn't have a lot of details, but simply reports that their driver thinks that there's been a shooting on 22nd Street. At 1.02 and 14 seconds a.m., about a minute later, another call comes in from the cab company, this time with some more details. Henderson had seen the guys involved in the shooting take off in a white van, turning east on chestnut, and had gotten the first three letters of the car's Pennsylvania tags, Y-Z-A. Later that night, at 3.10 a.m., Henderson gave the police a full statement of what he had witnessed. According to Henderson's statement, he had been driving north on 22nd Street, approaching Sansom Street, with Chestnut still another block ahead of him, around 1 o'clock a.m., when he heard a white flash and a popping sound. He looked to the right and saw a man in a dark, either blue or black hooded sweatshirt, about 5'7 or 5'8 feet tall, backing up, turn around, and start hurrying toward Chestnut. At trolley says he saw two men, one turn around and run, and the other in the hood back up and then quickly walk to the corner. At the same time, he noticed a man on the ground and a woman waving frantically at him. He realized the flash and pop he had heard was a gunshot, and he called it in to his dispatcher. He lost track of the first man, the one without the hood, but he saw the hooded man turn right on Chestnut, holding something under his shirt. The man's hood was up the entire time, and so Henderson wasn't able to see his face. When the man turned right on Chestnut, Henderson followed him and saw a white Chevy Blazer already there, sitting in the middle of the road, about half a block from the corner. It was straddling both lanes, westbound and eastbound, but faced east. A door on the driver's side was open, and Henderson saw the hooded man get in, in the seat behind the driver, and then the car took off. He tailed the Blazer for a few blocks and then lost them, but along the way made the second call to dispatch to report the first three numbers of the license plate that was put on blast to the police. Henderson eventually lost the car after making a few turns, but was able to testify that he saw four people in the car, two in the front and two in the back. He said he only ever saw the car from the back, but noticed two heads in the front of the car and someone already sitting in the back when the hooded man got in. He wasn't able to tell how many men or women were in the car though. Henderson then returned to the scene of the crime, where the police had already arrived. Not long after, they showed up with a white blazer that he had seen minutes earlier. While he couldn't positively identify either the young man or woman the police had taken into custody, he was certain it was the same vehicle.
3: So far, we are up to five witnesses and five different accounts. In each account, there are a number of different suspects involved, and they're wearing different things. Only one has made a positive identification of either of the suspects, Cabin, who says he saw the woman with her hair pulled into a bun in the passenger seat of the Chevy Blazer. They all seem to agree on one thing, though. The man who shot Taejong was wearing a black hoodie, and a woman was driving the getaway car. Which brings us to the most important witness to the events, one even more important to it than the testimony of Junko, who survived the attack but didn't really recall much about the perps. And that was a man named Andre Dawkins, who was able to detail better than anybody exactly who was involved in the murder. Dawkins was interviewed at 3.15 a.m. that night. There are a number of discrepancies between his police statement and his testimony at trial two years later. But let's start with his earliest description of what he saw. Dawkins did not have a proper job, but he was kind of employed by the employees of the A-plus convenience store to help clean up their parking lot. And he had just finished up sweeping the lot when he heard a gunshot. But before that, he had already noticed a white blazer with two pretty young women sitting in it. And before that, he apparently walked right past the two young men who attacked Jung. According to his police statement, he crossed paths with two young men about two blocks southeast from the scene of the crime. They were both black males walking on Walnut Street towards 21st Street. One wore a dark blue hooded sweatshirt with the hood pulled up, dark blue shorts, and black fila sneakers. He was about 5'7 and 140 pounds. The second man was brown-skinned with close-cut hair, had a bright stud in his left ear, and wore a white T-shirt with some writing on it and light green pants. He was about five six and a bit heavier. Dawkins continued towards 22nd Street, going to work, and the two men went north on 21st. When Dawkins arrived at 22nd and Walnut, at that same gas station where Cabin was on the phone, he saw the white truck parked at a gas pump. He noticed the two women sitting in the vehicle but not getting gas. Dawkins went into the store to get his broom and dust pail, and then he returned to the lot. He thought, maybe the women needed directions, why else would they be standing there doing nothing? So he approached the woman in the driver's seat and asked if she needed directions, but she waved him off. He then tried to ask her name, hitting on her, he admits, but again, she didn't say a word. Instead, maybe she was irritated, she drove off. He saw them drive up 22nd and make a right on Chestnut, but not long after, they circled back around and parked again in the exact same spot. He went up to the car again and told the ladies, hey, he didn't mean to offend them, and they could sit there if they wanted to. He then tried to talk to the girl in the passenger seat, but the driver tapped her on the arm and said, don't say nothing.
2: According to Dawkins, both the women were wearing white tops and the driver was letter complected with long black hair with a blonde streak in it. And the passenger had short hair. Both women also had some kind of bands or wraps in their heads. And according to Dawkins, the driver then drives away again. But this time only got as far as the phone booth, he said, where Caden was making his call. Then Dawkins describes the blazer backing up. And as it does so, it makes a beep, beep, beep noise. And then it parked right back where it had been before. Dawkins then approached the third time, he said. And yet again, the car drove off, this time faster, to the corner stands on the 22nd where Dawkins again noticed the same two young men he'd seen earlier, standing on the corner. Dawkins says at that point, the truck blocked the two men from his view, but he heard a pow, presumably the gunshot, and then saw the two men run north towards Chestnut, and the Blazer also headed in the same direction. He saw the man in the green pants get in the backseat of the vehicle, and the hooded man made a right on Chestnut, and the truck made a right after him. That's when Dawkins says he spoke to Cabin, who told him that a man had gotten shot, And according to Dawkins, he went over to the victim and Yunko and tried to keep her calm. And within 10 minutes, the police came back with the same white blazer he'd seen earlier and two of the people he'd seen that night, the female passenger and the hooded man in shorts. Except then Dawkins says something a bit different just a few sentences later. He says it's not the hooded man the police have in custody. It's the guy with the green pants and he can positively identify him. Although earlier he wasn't wearing glasses or a hat, When the police brought the man to the crime scene, now he's wearing both. 17 hours after giving the statement, the police talk to Dawkins again, and this time he's shown a photo array of young black women, and he picks one out. He says that she was the passenger in the car. That girl is Tiffany Jones. Tiffany Jones had actually already been interviewed by the police early that day, and in later episodes, you'll hear more about what she had to say. But getting back to Dawkins, by the time the trial rolled around, he suddenly had a lot more information about the crime. He testified,
1: I seen a young man get hit and two young men, one sat in his stomach, the other one held his feet and one shot the young man that was down killing him. And I seen the other young man flip him over and checked his pockets and shoot another lady that was with the young man and fled in a white blazer. One fled in the blazer at that time. The other one ran toward north, down 22nd, toward Chestnut and turned the corner. The Blazer turned the corner in the same direction. 91 Blazer.
3: Remember, in his first statement, he says he didn't see the attack take place at all and that Cabin had told him about it. So that's kind of odd and not really normal at all. But the trial won't be for another couple of years. And in the meantime, on the night of August 20th, 1991, the police have managed between all of these witnesses... To get positive identifications of both of their suspects and the car they were driving when they were stopped together, a white Chevy blazer with Pennsylvania tags starting with YZA about only half a mile from the scene of the crime within minutes of the murder. The suspects in their custody were 20 year old Deirdre Jones and 21 year old Chester Holm III. Within hours of the murder, Deirdre will end up confessing to the crime, as will her sister Tiffany Jones. But the only person to be charged and convicted for the murder of Tae Jung Ho will be Chester Holman III. Well, let me ask you something. Um, and let's be honest here. So Chester was found not far from the scene of the crime mm-hmm. in a car that matched right, right the perps with at least half a license plate that matched. Right. It seems like a pretty reasonable, you know, arrest yeah. on the face of it.
0: Yeah, it is one of those things on the surface. When you look at the case, you realize, okay, well... You know, the chances of that coincidence, that he was found a couple blocks away in the same car with, you know, the same uh, similar license plate, it does seem very strange. And it seems plausible that they would then think that he did this.
3: The thing is, though, Chester has maintained his innocence for the past 26 years. And if you think it seems impossible for him to make such a claim, given the evidence against him, think again. Because if there was ever a tragic set of coincidences leading to an innocent man being convicted of a crime he had nothing to do with, this is it. Next time on Undisclosed. A big thank you and shout out to Celeste Trusty, who is an assistant producer and lead investigator on this case with me. And also to Zachary Stern with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Thank you for all the work you've done in helping us research this case. Thank you to Mito Telhan, our executive producer, to Baluki for our fabulous new logo and branded graphics. A big thanks to all of our sponsors who keep us on the air. And of course, a big thanks to the person who keeps us sounding good, our audio producer extraordinaire, Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media and host of the podcast, Crime Writers On and HGTV and me. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at UndisclosedPod, and you can use the tag UDAddendum to tag us in questions for every week's addendum. Thanks so much for listening.